This is GSAP Conversations from the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University in New York City. I'm Dean Amal Andraos. Thanks for listening. I'm Paula Vilaplana, a second year CCCP student at Columbia GSAP. I am speaking with Ana Paula Ruiz Galindo and Meki Hoyes, co founders of Mexico City based firm Pedro y Juana. Their work explores the capacity of objects to change their environment through typological transgressions, the indiscriminate use of material, texture, color, placement, or form. They are teaching Advanced Studio 6 at GSAP during the spring 2019 semester. Thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, very much. First of all, congratulations on your winning proposal at the MoMA PS1 Young Architects Program. Your project, Orama Rama, will create an immersive environment in the PS1's courtyard, combining tropical rainforest elements in a geometry that connects to the history of the panorama photograph. Can you tell us a bit more about this project? Yeah, well, we're very excited and we're in the midst of getting this thing rolling since it's going to open on the 27th of June. And when we first got invited to make a proposal for Orama Rama, we had a site, yeah, we did have a site visit, yeah, we did. right? And we were interested in a way of bringing something that kind of felt completely foreign to the context of Queens. And also, we were interested in the amount of development that was happening outside of the museum. So we started playing a bit around on how we could maybe create this environment, in what surface it was going to be applied, whether it was like in the floor, in the walls. And then we immediately realized that when you're inside of the courtyard, you have this kind of first view that is the walls, and then you had a second view that is like the surroundings. And that's how the idea came of a panorama, to make a truly immersive environment from this possibility of having a ring floating right above the walls. We like the idea of the 19th century cycloramas pre-social media that were sort of the first immersive experiences and environments that people would be catapulted into. And so the courtyard is a difficult environment to actually make that happen. And so we basically redeployed this device on top of the courtyard, which reconfigures the way how you experience this as you walk through it, because there's a series of courtyards, obviously, and with this object being placed on top of it, there is an addition to it. So you walk in and out of Orama and you kind of pass through the courtyard. So the, the experience will be something else than has been in the past. Let's now move from Orama Rama to the Tropic with Love, your site-specific installation for the commons at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago. Here, you created an indoor garden equipped with multifunctional furniture that the users could rearrange. You described this project as a didactic piece. Could you expand on this? How can we learn from design? I think we, we talked about it as a dialectic piece, I thought. Yeah. It was more about creating a dialogue between the users and the objects that appear in, in this space. So this was a really interesting commission that came from the educational part of the museum. And the idea was to create a space that was flexible enough to have all the requirements that they were asking for. So it was a pretty ambitious brief, let's say. And so when we were in, we did various visits to Chicago. Previously, we had worked on the proposal for the biennial 
So we were kind of familiarized with Chicago and we really wanted to address the fact that it's so cold, like the majority of the year. And that's why we made this from the tropics with love because we just brought the tropics to Chicago in a, by creating kind of a flipped park. It was also about how many surfaces we had to play. So this was going to be a super dynamic phase. So we really only had the ceiling to go to or the, or, or the walls, but the walls were also going to be used for advertising the different artists that were going to participate. So we just went to do a hanging garden, one that worked more or less as a nursery as well. So each one, each one of these lamps became a planter and some state of being lamps. And that was part of the idea. Yeah, and I think the park in that regard is important because the museum basically asked us to create a third space of sorts that people who frequent the museum could sort of have as a destination that wasn't their home or their workplace and at the same time non-commercial. So they wouldn't end up at Starbucks, but actually could use the space to their benefit and in a certain regard program it to their own desire and so... The park is something that, in our understanding, allows for that as the most public of spaces that is out there. And it's not selling anything to you. So that kind of was a driving force. And at the same time, the idea around it was that this would be a place for experimentation to consider the sociopolitical frame and understanding of art in this time as a museum. And we've kind of considered the, the conservatory to be a space for that. So the land planters in themselves act as a conservatory in itself because it creates its own sky with a lamp and as an object proliferated throughout the ceiling, it becomes this landscape that in combination with the furniture creates then a space for contemplation and to, to really just hang out. I think in retrospect, to actually bring a living garden into a white cube 21st century contemporary art museum actually manages to flip that environment completely. So it was a good commission from both the museum and I think the response that we brought to it. Well, it will be there for five years. It's two more, yeah. three more years. At a certain moment, they will kill it. <laughs> This possibility of reconfiguring elements and spaces is present in several of your projects, like the installation that you just mentioned, the Chicago Biennial or the Archivo Pavilion. And both projects seem to grant agency to the users. Your architecture seems to suggest moves rather to impose a fixed use of space. How do you manage this tension from the design process? By not coming with a grand idea and throw it at a space and try to keep the domain of in what happens in these spaces. I think this is more about managing expectations from the architect side that you do not have any control. So... It is really about looking at typologies that allow people to... Uh... Behave in different ways. So I would say it's more of a provocation also. We like to think that the object also has an agency within these environments. And so depending on how you place it or the amount of permission you give the user to change it or fix it, it will actually create different actions. So these actors will have a different relationship with whomever decides to use them in different ways. So I think that we're very much interested in seeing what happens within the spaces more than having like an idea of how they should be used. It's more about an assembly of possibilities that kind of range within the object's performance and the spatial typological opportunities that exist within that. And then 
try to reconfigure them in a way that people actually might be encouraged to, to take that on. Absolutely. This flexibility has a very powerful performative component in your project. I'm thinking of, for example, projects like Sobremesa or the Living Room of the City, projects that reflect on forms of domesticity too. To what extent do your housing projects absorb these kind of explorations? Well, that's different. So it's always really hard to bring back these experimental, let's say, actions that you are able to do within pavilions or within cultural spaces and then try to make it through to the domestic place. But I think that it's also we have to think about architecture not as a final result, but also all the process that takes place while building a, a building, right? Because there's also the permits that you have to take out. So we recently we are about to construct a building in Mexico that is a five apartment building, which is a very domestic place. And I think that the most interesting situation happened when we were getting the license permits to, to get it done because it was about talking with the preservation offices, it was an old building, and then that pushed us to talking with the neighbors because it's a very active neighborhood, and that got us to like making a park for the neighborhood. So I think it is very interesting to start looking at all these different, again, actors that are participate within a project and not only in the final stage. And of course, then the design comes through in the way that we want to relate like the outside to the inside and how we, how we uh, maybe organize the spaces in the ways that we believe domesticity gets driven, like it's used right now. But we're constantly thinking about the way that we want, we would use the space and what the quality of that space can be. And also somehow be resistant to what people might do in the future to it, if they want to like, you know, divide it and like have smaller spaces because that's a tendency for more money, then maybe find a way structurally to resist that. But I think we're constantly thinking of how I mean, how much agency does architecture have in the future of those buildings? I agree. I think the process of building is not just in how people actually live at the end of the day. It is, it is actually a practice of building that involves every participant from, from the construction crew through getting the licenses on Apollo SES and dealing with the neighbors a lot. So. Well, and the construction process that we haven't started, that will be another <laughs> layer to the project that will be super interesting and more material-based. So the testing, the, we are very much interested in materiality and how we can push it. And that, I mean, you can think prior to the building process that it's better for the budget, obviously, but there's things that just have to happen when you're building. Speaking of materiality, there is in your work a very beautiful tension between traditional craft and digital fabrication processes. Can you tell us a bit more about the way you rework this duality? I think this has to do with us living and practicing primarily in Mexico City. So we live in an environment where traditional crafts are still vividly alive. And at the same time, do we live in a country that has been part of the industrial fabricator for car industry, aeronautical industry, for a lot of very advanced production facilities. And so there is the possibility to actually tap into both of these. And then at the same time, we grew up at a time where the digital medium of, of design became a predominant factor in actually executing this. So moving sort of from our education and then back to Mexico, there was an obvious way to, to actually apply that to, to the artisanal and then make use of 
the more advanced industry at the same time. So it is, it is really the tools that you have available that, that actually produce this outcome. It's not so much of an ideological step from our side to, to have decided on, on that. Yeah. We like to say that we don't never discriminate any type of material and that's, and that's what we like to think of the way that we choose different materials and the way that we create this dialogue between like obviously the technological part that we, I studied my master's at SciArc and it was very digitally driven. So we came and then we worked for an artist that was very much material driven, but also with like a CNC machine and a laser. So we've been kind of instructed in these two kind of parts of the scopes and then being in Mexico City and being able to also work with people that just work with their hands and it's like a very slow process. We, we like to use both of these tools so in order to make our projects and see what can come out of it. And this also creates a very beautiful conversation in your work between the local and the global. For example, in, in the PS1 pavilion that you were talking about creating a foreign environment. What is foreign for you? How do you work? with being foreign or not being it in Mexico or in the U.S.? Well, uh, <laughs> I don't know really what, what makes you foreign to a place or what makes you local, right? I mean, we are constantly, well, now that we're teaching here in Colombia, we're traveling back and forth. Mickey is originally from Germany and he hasn't been there in like, I don't know how many years, 14? 20. 20. <laughs> in 20 years and I am from Mexico so I'm back home and I think we're very interested also in the political conversation that is happening specifically today and when we got invited to do the PS1 and you know Trump being the president we thought that it was necessary also to start talking about how these foreign objects that come into a place can affect its, its surroundings or like how do you how does architecture again has this agency and we are creating these objects and how do we start a conversation how do we begin to to talk about things that we might make us uncomfortable or that are constantly talked about within in the media or in you know we're like so bombarded by information and like you get it every day like okay Trump now is going to close the border or Trump is going to do this and that and it feels like a threat almost also in this relationship between the U.S. and Mexico so I don't know in a way we, we did talk about it but it's really hard to just be so specific about something and uh, I think it's more about a cultural cultural correspondence you know it's like We obviously deal with kind of moments of environments that we have experienced, so certainly we ourselves. So if we bring a certain export of Mexico into the courtyard of the PS1, it is in a way to, to ramp up what already is very existing in, in New York. There is a big Latino community. The food is already there, which is a big component of a culture. So there, there are certain other elements that we, we kind of tool with and think that if you kind of put them next to each other that they could create a tension that might produce something. So for instance, we're trying to bring the mezcal into warm up so that there is actually a component that you can taste and maybe we can go as far as kind of engaging with the food components of the events at PS1 so that there is an experience that kind of is a little bit more complete around that. Right. I mean, there's also different objects that are within the Orangarama, which are like the hammocks that are going to be made in Merida, Yucatan. So I think it's again connecting this bigger network that is it's all about making this one project that at the end you just see it as, 
maybe one object, but it has all these different elements that build it. And to finish, I would like to ask you about another of your projects. Hotel Palenque is not in Yucatan, which is related also to this tension that you were mentioning. Hotel Palenque is not in Yucatan is a piece that builds on Robert Smithson's theories of de-architecturization. How does your project dialogue with this idea of a permanent state of construction and demolition, trial and error? What Hotel Palenque represents for you? Hotel Palenque represents for us the beginning of a, <laughs> of a trip, I guess, or like a, how would you call this? But we, it, it started like really early in our career and, and really it began because we did this competition for uh, the Venice Biennial that was done by Kuljas that was all about absorbing modernity. And we had to get together a team of a historian and a curator. And that was Jimena Cogreve and Montserrat Alvarez. And Monse came up uh, in their first like discussion that we were having was like, what is modernity for Mexico? Like, what, where, where can we find an interesting architecture like idea that we can start talking about modernity? And that's when Hotel Palenque came up. And I think it was just perfect because it was really just kind of describing an idea of modernity through also anthropological pieces because he was in Hotel Palenque and he did it. So it was kind of a method that we used. And I think we continually use it, although it's kind of more like our subconscious. <laughs> but we're completely playing with this, the architecturalization and the side and not the side. And what is really a linear process or what is really a more of a circular parallel understanding of history. And we really like to play with this, like where does modernity start? So we were making kind of a claim that modernity was already there when the Aztecs built their buildings because it's so like a linear way of building and this organizational part that was already there. So I think that with theory, you can always play around with what was first and what was not. And this idea of decolonization is something that we're very interested in exploring. And also that's why we're looking into ways of seeing, which is a panorama. A panorama was, a, in the 19th century, a way of seeing, an occidental way of seeing. So we're trying to maybe, I mean, we come from an occidental schooling, of course, even though, I mean, I am Mexican and we live in Mexico, but it's also something that you kind of start to understand as, as you grow as a practice. And so, Hotel <laughs> Palenque, I think it was our starting point to, to drive our projects somewhere where we couldn't control at what we were looking at to a certain degree. So I think it, it kind of entered the practice to a certain extent and manages and never to, 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 to never left and manages to produce something that, you know, it's like over, over the, the course of producing more work kind of manages to make these pieces that we don't have antecedentes to. So Presidents. Presidents. <laughs> it's really trying to understand what is happening around us, but not by, by trying to explain it, but by inserting something else into the equation and hoping that this might clear up the idea. I think that that is what Hotel Palenque is not in Yucatan kind of detonated in the very beginning. Well, I think this is a fantastic way to wrap up the conversation. Thank you so much, Ana Paula, Meki. Thank you. Thank you for having us. This podcast was produced by Columbia GSAP. You can find more information about the school on our website at arc.columbia.edu.